This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. If you've scrolled through your television stations in recent months, you've certainly come across a program inspired by our guest today. The History Channel's How the States Got Their Shapes has been delving into the geography of the United States of America in a most informative and entertaining way. This program originated in the best-selling book of the same name by author Mark Stein. Mr. Stein is a playwright and screenwriter. He teaches drama and writing at American University and Catholic University. His plays have been performed throughout the country, while his films include House Sitter with Steve Martin and Goldie Hawn. Mark Stein's success in How the States Got Their Shapes has now led to a sequel. It is titled The People Behind the Borderlines and examines in greater detail the stories behind the actions of many individuals which led to those lines which mark off our 50 states. There are many great stories here and we're keen to talk about them. Thus, it's our great pleasure to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Mark Stein. Thank you, Doug. Well, Mark, the first question I have to ask is what led a writer of fiction to take an in-depth look at American geography? Well, it was, it was more that I was uh, doing a lot of screenwriting. Uh, uh, and uh, it turns out that, unbeknownst to me, as screenwriters get into their 40s, if they're not by then writer-producers or writer-directors, uh, they're pretty much put to pasture. Uh, so I had to figure out what to chew on in the pasture. And uh, I grew up in Maryland, and uh, I remember very clearly in the seventh grade, which was a long time ago, looking at a map of the state in my geography class and wondering, how did this happen? It's missing half a rectangle off the eastern end. <laughs> turns out to be Delaware. Mm-hmm. Truly remembering at that moment, thinking, why do we have Delaware? Maryland wouldn't be that big if it included Delaware. Do we really need Delaware? Questions like that kind of stayed with me, and uh, the more I looked at the map, the, the more came. So while I was in the pasture, I thought, hey, why don't you, why don't you find out why we have Delaware and see where that takes you? Uh, or find out at the other end of the spectrum, if you will, the most boring type of shape on the map, Wyoming or Colorado, mm-hmm. why are the lines where they are? Why aren't they two or three miles this way or, or that way? And to my surprise, really, it turned out to be one fascinating story after another. Well, I hope we'll return to that part of the country a little bit later here, but I'd like to refer to the fact that I, too, remember sitting there in junior high looking at those large maps in front of the class showing how um, big chunks of geography came together to create the U.S., um, I want to start with one of those chunks that seemed to be on all the maps but was never explained too well, and that was called the Gadsden Purchase. Who yeah. was Gadsden, and why did he purchase a chunk of present-day Arizona and New Mexico from the Mexican government? Right, and the chunk you're talking about on the map would be seen as, uh, the bottom part of it anyway, would be seen as the, the, the southern border of Arizona and uh, New Mexico. There's those kind of angled and straight lines there yes. from the Gadsden Purchase. What's fascinating about the Gadsden Purchase to me today is with all the talk we hear about the relationship between the federal government and bailing out big business and doing things for big business, who's controlling the show and so forth, the Gadsden Purchase was made ostensibly to acquire a, a land from Mexico to purchase, that had a pass through those Rocky Mountains down there so that a southern, a second and southern transcontinental railroad uh, could, could be built. Who was Gadsden? He was a railroad president, so <laughs> taxpayer money was used to acquire land uh, so that the railroads could make uh, a profit once they could uh, g- get hold of that land. 
Now, in fairness, by the way, railroads could not negotiate the land purchase with Mexico because they can't engage in a treaty, nor can a state. So mm-hmm. there is a flip side to the story, but nevertheless, uh, uh, that, that was... Uh, that was that, that, that's the that's the first level of what's interesting about the Gadsden Purchase. Uh, if there were more time, or if you wish to take it, there's a whole other level in which it may or may not have been part of a grand scheme. This was in uh, uh, 1853, I believe, uh, or thereabouts, uh, by slaveholding states. There was a fear of a grand scheme to create a southern tier of slaveholding states, continuing from Texas, which was slaveholding across the bottom of what is now Arizona, New Mexico. They did not exist separately at the time. And to divide California, even though it had already become a single state, there was still a movement to divide it into a northern and southern California. Southern would be slaveholding. Guess who was part of that movement? James Gadsden. Uh, <laughs> and the other piece was to acquire, I guess I am talking about it, aren't I? Yeah. Uh, to acquire Cuba. And that was a chapter in the book on Mississippi Governor John Quitman raising a private army illegally. It's against the law to do this, to go into Cuba. It was an open secret, widely printed in the press. So the Gadsden Purchase fits into a whole larger aspect of American history uh, in terms of sort of trying to position the pieces leading up to the Civil War, trying to position the pieces of slave states and free states. Yeah, that is, that's certainly a recurring theme throughout throughout the book. Um uh, let, let's. A, a lot, I was surprised to learn that an awful lot of U.S. borders came about because of political actions taken by European royalties with land grants and such in the 1600s, and a lot of those arose from religious struggles going on in Europe between Protestant, Protestant Catholic, etc. I want to talk about that maybe with one of the story of the most famous and maybe misunderstood borders in the U.S., the Mason-Dixon line. Right. Well, the Mason-Dixon line was not, uh, per se, a religious conflict. It, didn't, it resulted, uh, in that case from a uh, contradictions in the uh, documents from the English monarchs that created Pennsylvania and uh, Maryland and Delaware. The big misunderstanding about Mason-Dixon line is this. People think that it divided, it was, had to do with slavery. It had nothing to do with slavery. Uh, it, was, it was located by Mason and Dixon in 1763. That's before the revolution. There was no regulation of slavery at that time. Any colony could, and in fact, every colony did, permit slavery. Mason and Dixon were, uh, you know, the the phrase Dixie may indeed refer to to Jeremiah Dixon, but Jeremiah Dixon was not a Southerner. He was not even an American, nor was uh, Charles Mason. They were British. And those contradictions had created so much in, in the documents, had created such long controversy before they finally agreed in principle on how to resolve it, that they went to England and got two of the finest scientists in England. Uh, 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 Today we might call them astrophysicists. They were really much more into that kind of science to come over and survey this line because they would be absolutely unbiased. Uh, Getting Mason and Dixon to be surveyors is akin to getting Mozart to play at the prom. Uh, 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 So that's that's the origin of the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, only later did it come into uh, parlance uh, as, a, as a dividing line. It was kind of a shorthand dividing line uh, for free states and slave states. And it actually came into that use after the Louisiana Purchase and the need to divide that about slavery. And a line was used in the Missouri Compromise. Once that was done, the idea of a line and the fact that Pennsylvania was free, Maryland was not, 
they used the Mason-Dixon, that segment of the Mason-Dixon line, which is actually three separate segments at right angles. Yeah. Uh, and, and there were slave areas north of that line, so it was a shorthand, but nothing to do with slavery. Because I think that Pennsylvania was Quaker, Maryland was Catholic, and Delaware had a bunch of Swedes that were Protestants. So it's weird that how religion seemed to play a role, too. Well, religion played a big role in, in why Delaware uh, kept separate of Maryland, absolutely. Uh, this, is, this is well prior to Mason and Dixon, but it is, in fact, that era where documents were written that had uh, uh, conflicting data. Uh, and yes, uh, Pennsylvania, Delaware had been part of the Dutch settlements. We think of Manhattan as Dutch. But actually, they stretched from Delaware Bay, uh, which is the big bay above Chesapeake Bay, if you will, that turns into the Delaware River that separates Pennsylvania and New Jersey, uh, and then on up, and then it extended over and picked up the Hudson River. That was all Dutch. And once the Dutch authorities were ousted, not the Dutch people, uh, they had to figure out what to do, England, because the last thing they wanted was trouble with their colonies. And the Dutch in what is now Delaware did not want to be part of a Catholic colony of Maryland. Uh, they feared they would lose any autonomy. And uh, I have a chapter on Augustine Herman and how he managed to pull that off. You have so many wonderful tales. Um, one, I, one I, it's irresistible, uh, is based on the fact, I guess, well, well, in the East Coast, you guys just got a pretty sizable earthquake, which I think sh shook everybody up a little bit. <laughs> it did me. <laughs> Most people know by now that probably the largest quake in U.S. history wasn't in California. It was apparently in Missouri in 1811. And what they, I'm sure, don't know is that the New Madrid quake and the subsequent actions of a man named John Hardiman Walker led to... Missouri having that little little tail that curls around in Arizona. Uh, tell us about that curious little borderline. Yeah, it's called the Boot Heel. It's in the southeastern uh, uh, corner of uh, Missouri, and it digs down into Arkansas down below it. And that is the quake area from, I believe it was 1812 uh, and 13, a series of very violent earthquakes. Uh, John Hardiman Walker was a teenager, 16, 17, 18 years old, somewhere in there, when the quake happened. Everybody just cleared out of the area, but, but, uh, including his family. But he came back after a few months alone, uh, and he discovered uh, this, all this land was evacuated. The cattle and so forth was just roaming free, and he took it upon himself to use uh, waterways and down trees to create fencing and just declare a lot of land his own. And by the time he was in his early 20s, he was known as the czar of the St. Francis River Valley. To give you some sense of what I mean by where the St. Francis River is, if you can imagine this little boot heel of Missouri on the southeast corner, the eastern half of that boot heel is the Mississippi River. The western to the left part of that boot heel is a segment of the St. Francis River. So that's where he had a lot of land. And it's when Missouri was going for statehood. He wanted his land to be in Missouri, but he could see the Missouri Compromise was establishing that line I referred to was not going to include his land. Uh, it, it may partly have been that he knew that the future state below, which became Arkansas, would not become a state for many, many years, or it could be that he knew that Missouri, since it contained the confluence of the Missouri River and the Mississippi at St. Louis, was destined to be, in his lifetime, one of the most influential and powerful states in the Union, and it was. Uh, he wanted to be in Missouri. Uh, how he did it, we know he went to uh, the, the territorial capital, and we know he then traveled to Washington, D.C., 
And we know he was a very rich man. And we know that, there, I quoted in the book, there's a senator, a congressman, I think it was, who said at one point when they were passing the law, wait a minute, this map has suddenly changed from what we saw before. Why has it been changed in this way? And nobody answered it. So we can only try to fill in the blanks on what John Hardiman Walker used to persuade Congress to change the map. <laughs> We can make some speculations, I think. (laughs) Yes. Well, in a book that you filled with interesting characters, the guy that struck you as maybe the single most colorful is is Sam Houston. Houston plays a key role, of course, in creating Texas, but until I read your book, I wasn't really aware of what, um, I guess a wild man wouldn't be too strong a word for (laughs) what Sam Houston was and and how lucky he seemed to be again and again. Can you tell us a bit about his story? You know, like you, I, I knew a little of Sam Houston, and when I was writing the book and looking into his life, I too had no, no idea what a, at times, absolutely wild man, and at times, perhaps, uh, uh, how do I want to say it, uh, sort of crazy like a fox wild. Yeah. Uh, if, 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 it, if, in fact, it, he didn't think very carefully before executing something that appeared wild. Uh, uh, but his career uh, literally was this kind of staggering career, and if one puts onto that alcoholic staggering, not always inappropriate to add that to it. Uh, that uh, took him, uh, his, his family was uh, in, in, in Tennessee. Uh, he, as a young boy, his father had died. I'll try to really just hit some high points here. He ran away from home, and he joined up with Cherokee Indians in the wilderness, and became adopted by a local chief uh, uh, who, uh, uh, as his son. Uh, uh, years later, that chief sent Sam Houston with a Cherokee delegation for a negotiation with Secretary of State at the time, John C. Calhoun, and Sam Houston shows up in Cherokee regalia. Uh, uh, <laughs> Calhoun was not pleased and, 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 and expressed that fact. Jumping ahead a little bit, some years later, he went again with another Cherokee delegation, and again in Cherokee regalia, this time meeting with the President of the United States, who at that point was Andrew Jackson. Jackson knew Sam Houston by then, and Jackson's reaction was to laugh and just slap a whole Sam on the, on the, on, on the shoulder. Uh, Sam Houston uh, uh, fought one duel and won it, never fought again. Uh, he, he knew when to hold them and when to fold them. Uh, he uh, was the governor of Tennessee. There was a personal marital thing that came up. He resigned the governorship, went on a bender in the wilderness, back to his, this is so many years later, to his adopted father. That's when he got sent on the second mission. Uh, once the, his adopted uh, his father, the, the, the local chief, uh, uh, sobered him up. Uh, just, a, just a fascinating man. And uh, uh, at that time, Texas was looking like Americans there might try to break it away from Mexico, and uh, Jackson feared that, that, that Houston had his eye on Texas, and he did. <laughs> and uh, eventually, after a point when it was you know uh, able to do it, had his cards lined up politically, he went off to Texas and became uh, the leader of its military, really, and in, in winning its independence from Mexico. One last quick thing about Sam Houston. Uh, uh, when the Civil War was breaking out, uh, he was an old man by then, a very old man, but he, he, he supported slavery, he opposed secession. Uh-huh. And in a plea to uh, uh, prevent Southerners from seceding, he said, a house divided among itself cannot stand. The very thing that Lincoln 
is credited with saying later. Yeah. I should point out they were both quoting the New Testament, <laughs> but uh, Lincoln got the credit. The book is The People Behind the Borderlines, and we're speaking with author Mark Stein. Mark, before we leave the subject of Texas, I just have to mention two points that I learned from your book, that if the defenders of the Alamo had listened to Sam Houston, they wouldn't have gotten themselves killed. And, and, and more importantly, the biggest beef the American settlers had when they settled in northern Mexico was that slavery had been forbidden by the Mexican government. We, we lose sight of that. That's right. That's right. And that also, you know, the, 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 when Mexico joined the United States in 1845, Mexico, rightly or not, suspected we had our eyes on more of Mexico, and the Mexican War happened. We won it. That's when we won uh, the area that's now New Mexico. So we not only got a lot, of, a lot of land, I mean, California, too, and all that, we got a lot of new citizens along the Rio Grande there through what is now New Mexico, particularly in the area called Santa Fe. And uh, what's fascinating uh, is uh, uh, how we dealt with these people who did not choose to be Americans, did not speak our language, how do we bring them into this country uh, in a way that they feel secure and welcome? And, and, you know, we hear a lot of criticism about American government, but both in the, the case of New Mexico and earlier with the Louisiana Purchase, where we also purchased, if you will, we acquired a lot more citizens who spoke French and same thing. They were not looking to be Americans. This is Thomas Jefferson. How did we do it? And both times, the boundaries of both Louisiana and New Mexico, which I write about, New Mexico in this new book, uh, in, in close detail, the two people critical to it, uh, we succeeded, not 100%, but well enough that by comparison to Canada and its issues with the Quebecois that are splitting that country even today, we did a pretty good job. Well, let's talk about another pair of people that, uh, that turn up in the book. Uh, I was surprised to know from reading the book that um, that. Two U.S. presidents who lost to each other, John Quincy Adams, who beat Andrew Jackson in 1824, and then Jackson won the rematch in 1828, knew each other pretty well, and in fact, each in his own way, in essence, sort of accidentally collaborated in stealing Florida away from Spain. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, uh, uh, Jackson at times, not unlike Sam Houston, appeared to be a wild man. I suspect a much more calculated wild man than might appear, you know, on the surface. One of the things he did, this is when uh, uh, John Quincy Adams was the Secretary of State before the presidential bids, uh, and, and Jackson was a general. Jackson uh, uh, totally defied his orders and took control, and uh, attacked and took control uh, of the Spanish fort, fort at Pensacola, which in, a, in those days, uh, the key part of Florida is its panhandle, that long peninsular part of Florida. Uh, at the, that point in time, was not uh, something that was economically prized, but but the, but but the, but the, but the areas along the Gulf of Mexico and that peninsula that was that was very much you know really the key to Florida. There was a huge huge diplomatic uproar by Spain and then amongst the in the American government about this guy Jackson putting us in this position. In his diaries, John Quincy Adams, in his diaries, amid this uproar, noted. Gee, it's interesting. Spain hasn't retaliated. And at the time, John Quincy Adams was negotiating with Spain because the Louisiana Purchase from Jefferson's day didn't have any boundaries included. It was a very brief document. Mm -hmm. He was negotiating those boundaries. And he, he, he saw that Spain didn't, you know, they made a lot of noise, but they didn't do anything. He said, I think they're weaker than we realized. We knew they were weak, but he knew they were weaker than we realized in this chaos. And he totally changed his, his bargaining stance 
with, with, with uh, Spain. And the result is, on the map, two things. The eastern boundary of Texas that you see today, that curving around, the straight line up, a little curving to the west, the straight line up, all that's from uh, John Quincy Adams' treaty with Spain, mm-hmm. and it, they threw in the state of Florida. Uh, so he and Jackson, although they weren't buddy-buddy, they, and, and Jackson and, and, and during this, Jackson and John Quincy Adams conferred with each other and maps. Mm-hmm. They, 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 were, they, were, they, they were working hand-in-hand, hand, even though right around the corner they were to become bitter, bitter political opponents. Yeah, and I guess at one point Adams hosted a party for Jackson to start to bring him out and show what a great guy he was. That's... Yes, he did. He did. I'm not quite sure why he did, but, <laughs> but, 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 but he did. And maybe that was uh, part of a little quid pro quo, huh. uh, the cooperation and insights that Jackson was sharing with him about uh, Spain on, on the ground, as you will, uh, there in Florida. I think, in my opinion, maybe the single most colorful example of maneuvering, and, and of course your book's filled with these stories uh, the leading to state borderlines, might be the story of how in the Civil War, Virginia got split in two as its western region remained loyal to the Union. And at the center of all that, we find a crafty lawyer uh, with some shifty le- legal reasoning named Francis H. Pierpont. Uh, let's talk about that story. Thank you for asking about that, Doug, because that's one of my favorites. <laughs> I don't know why the lawyer wannabe in me or something. <laughs> yeah, up until the Civil War, Virginia, as we know it, also included West Virginia. Uh, it was then referred to as Western Virginia. It was the western part of the state. It was a mountainous part of the state. It was not nearly as prosperous as Tidewater and Piedmont, Virginia, and the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, and uh, therefore, it was also uh, underrepresented in the legislature because uh, to get voting in Virginia, you had to have a certain amount of property. And in addition for population, slaves were a percentage of each slave was counted as part of the population. So they were way underrepresented, very unhappy in the state uh, all the way back, and had repeatedly asked, can we separate? And the state had said no. Then Virginia separates, secedes from the Union in 1861, I guess. They have a meeting in western Virginia, a convention where they say, hey, if they seceded, Virginia seceded from the Union, we'll secede from Virginia. And Pierpont, who supported the idea, stood up and said, no, you can't do that because uh, the federal government has said you cannot secede from the Union. They're not going to recognize a state that has seceded from a state. Mm-hmm. We have to come up with a way to secede from Virginia based on the illegality of secession. <laughs> and only a lawyer could figure out how to solve that riddle. And Francis Pierpont did. And uh, 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 I won't go through the steps, but it was an eye-popping tap dance. And <laughs> obviously he pulled it off because today we have this queerly shaped, in some respects, state of West Virginia. Uh, one brief thing about its boundary with, with Virginia and its funny little panhandle over the part that they call it the eastern panhandle, it kind of arcs a little half circle over, over Virginia. Uh, those are the places where on the day a vote was taking about separation. Those are the places where Union troops were in occupation. <laughs> if Union troops weren't there, ain't it going to be no vote. <laughs> uh, so that's the, where those, those votes took place, because the Union troops were there to allow it to take place. This is so often the case, I think, in history. Uh, final person I want to ask you about is, is, he is a famous name in American history, Stephen A. Douglas of the celebrated Lincoln-Douglas debates. 
Uh, you note in the book that, that Douglas probably established more present-day state lines than any other individual, which I thought was pretty amazing. Um, and, of course, it's rooted in the whole matter of slave states versus free states. But how did this all come about through, through Douglas? Stephen Douglas is one of their number of people in the book. Stephen Douglas, uh, I, I would say the same in this regard about the, uh, uh, Daniel, Daniel Webster uh, um, and some others. That they're famous, but it's like, why are they famous? You know, the, Douglas go, oh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, you know, which, well, by the way, they were, Douglas won that election. It was for right. Senate in 1858. Right. You know? so, so why is this guy famous? Douglas had a quest in life, and that was to become the president of the United States. And he, his, his, his goal to do it, his tactic was to do it by, uh, by keeping the United States from dividing into two separate nations. And particularly on two, two occasions, he became, to do that, he became the chairman of the Senate Committee on Territories. That's the, that's the committee that draws the lines when you create a new state. Uh, and, and on two occasions, in that capacity, he was involved in very important lines that prevented, for a while, the Civil War, and some of them then uh, uh, re- re- echoed, uh, set a pattern, set a baseline uh, for the future. So he impacted more lines than any other individual. So, real quickly, which two were they? One was called the Compromise of 1850, which was a package of five different bills. One of them was a bill that purchased from the state of Texas. Texas had been a republic. When it came into the United States, this whole thing, as you had mentioned, they wanted to keep slavery. Mm-hmm. Slavery at that point, you could not have slavery above that line I've mentioned a couple times, 36 degrees, 30 minutes, the Missouri Compromise. So Texas, which was much bigger than the Texas we know today, went all the way up, taperingly up to Wyoming, uh, relinquished all its land north of 36 that's where the top of the Texas Panhandle is. But it also had all the land, or claimed it to the Rio Grande, which goes to the middle of what is now New Mexico. And they had $10 million in debt, something Governor Perry might want to think about when he talks about <laughs> becoming a separate republic. Uh, uh, to get themselves out of debt in the Compromise of 1850, they sold a chunk of their western land from the Rio Grande to the line you see now, that kind of straight half a rectangle out of the eastern, western part of uh, Texas to the United States for the amount they owed to other debtors and uh, uh, creditors, and uh, 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 it became part of New Mexico. Well, those lines, why are they where they are? Because Stephen Douglas, those were the lines he came up with. And in particular, the straight line up and down there. That's 103 degrees west longitude. Give me a break. Why not 105 or 100? You know? uh-huh. Nice round number. Why did... Douglas come up with 103. It is one of the most brilliantly located lines on the map, because in the future, after Douglas's time, in fact, they created from that New Mexico territory, which included Arizona, the state of Arizona, and they divided it with another vertical line. A lot of people may think that line is where it is, so that you can have that nifty little four-corner thing with <laughs> Colorado and Utah. Mm-hmm. But in fact, when they put that line there between New Mexico and Arizona, it put that sensitive Hispanic population, that frightened population because they were afraid of Texans for good reason, three degrees from Texas and three degrees from Arizona, creating six degrees of width, and created Arizona with, it's not a straight line, so we'll say approximately six degrees of width, very, very, almost identical in size, two states. It's a, a, a brilliant division both for 
for protecting that Hispanic population and trying, as best Congress could, and they couldn't always do so, to create equal states. Uh, then we go to the uh, uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act 1854. <laughs> I've taken a little too much time, I think, with this. <laughs> when Kansas entered the Union, uh, this was after the Mexican War and all this new land we'd acquired in the West. What are we going to do with it in terms of slavery? Uh, the Missouri Compromise gets thrown out the window, and, and, and Douglas establishes boundaries for Kansas at, at, and, and the bottom of Nebraska. Here's a little-known fact. When he first introduced the bill, the southern boundary of Kansas was right against the top of the Texas panhandle, and then there was such a brouhaha about doing away with the Missouri Compromise, letting each state or territory decide for itself, called popular sovereignty, very few people noticed that he inched that boundary of Kansas up one half of one degree. Uh-huh. That left a gap, which is now the Oklahoma panhandle. Mm-hmm. But it created a t- Kansas with three degrees of height. And it created a baseline that even goes further west. But that baseline enabled Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, prairie states, exactly three degrees of height, each one. Just to the west, same baseline, mountainous states, uh, Colorado, uh, 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 Wyoming and Montana, four degrees of height. Uh, it also starts bringing us back to Jefferson's original concept about using a prototype. Uh, all those lines came from baselines established by Stephen Douglas. He was he was a he was a brilliant, brilliant man in terms of of the map and in terms of boundaries. Well, Mark, we have not covered uh, more than about just really a half dozen of of, of the men in, in your book, and you've got. 40 chapters talking about these different things, so listeners going to have to get a copy to learn more, which is going to be a good move on their part. But before we leave the, 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 this whole subject, uh, final question is, uh, what story among all these many that we haven't touched on do you think is the most outrageous? <laughs> I think the most... There are some real outrageous ones. Uh, I'll tell you what, real quickly, to me, the most outrageous is a, is a chapter called Lyman Cutler's Neighbor's Pig. Uh, and there are a couple that are a little like this, how ping the pong to ding the dong, a state line gets established down the line. Uh, Lyman Cutler was just a guy who had some land on an island in Puget Sound, but it's called the San Juan Islands. He had land on one of those islands, uh, Puget Sound up there between uh, the state of Washington and uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, and that group of islands, because of an uncertainty in the treaty, was uh, uh, disputed between the United States and England in 1859. Uh, He was an American cutler, uh, a pig owned by his neighbor who was British, was eating, continually eating food in his garden, so he shot the pig. (laughs) Here's what happened real quickly. He shot the pig. The British authorities were told, and they said, well, we're going to put this man on trial over in what was then the territory of Washington, Washington State today. Uh, the U.S. Uh, military that was running the show there in the territory said, oh, we can't allow that because that's in effect saying that this is British land. So they sent troops over onto the island. The British said, oh, they're sending troops? Call the Navy. <laughs> Suddenly, British battleships are encircling the island. He hears about that, but the general, more troops are sent in. Within a very short period of time, I forget the exact number, but an outrageous amount of military is facing an outrageous amount of military. Uh, and we're on the verge of war with England. This is early years of communication when Washington finds out. They say, whoa, 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 whoa. Neither <laughs> of us want to go to war over this. And it gets, uh, over a period of time, adjudicated. But we almost went to war with England. And we did, by the way, win in the adjudication over Lyman Cutler's neighbor's pick. Wow. 
Our guest has been Mark Stein. His new book is The People Behind the Borderlines, with the alternative title of How the States Got Their Shapes Too. Well, we have to confess I haven't read the original book. I'm hoping maybe after I do that, maybe we can call you back in October and have you back to talk about uh, the first one. I would love to do that. All right. Well, Mark Stein, thanks so much for speaking with us. Okay. Thank you, Doug. It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. I've come to look for America. Counting the cars on the New Jersey turnpike. They've all come to look for America. 